Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. This week in Canada, conversation has been dominated by the forest fires spreading from coast to coast. The health warnings and issues they are causing are felt not only here, but around the globe. The present situation is a wake-up call to those still doubtful about climate change, urging everyone to step up and take responsibility. Yes, the skies will clear again, but we must remember that events like these forcing us to wear air-filtering masks and heed indoor stay warnings will become more frequent if our government doesn't take decisive action to alleviate the harm. I try not to stand on a soapbox too often here, but with climate change, silence is not an option. In the upcoming weeks, I'll be bringing in experts to discuss what we can do. And if there's a climate topic you're particularly interested in, please reach out. Connect with me at What She Said Talk on Facebook and Instagram. But for now, here's what's coming up on today's show. This year, more than ever, it's important to be vocal about our support of the LGBTQIA2S plus community as they face a barrage of hate and threats, prompting the federal government to even increase security funding for Pride events. Faye Johnstone from Wisdom to Action knows all too well what this group is facing on a daily basis after being inundated with death threats and hate messages for appearing on a Hershey's chocolate bar this spring. Faye, thankfully, is no shrinking violet and has been continuing her advocacy work to protect the rights of this small but mighty community. Faye joins me to discuss the current state of things in Canada and how allies can help. Chelsea Felker was lonely and wanted to make friends, but how to do that in our hyper-connected yet disconnected world? Through TikTok, of course, and by moving the online-offline into events and meetups. Her idea is taking off in her hometown of Ottawa, and through it, women are finding new BFFs. Chelsea joins me to share why she started her account and how anyone can do this in their city. Anne Brody is in with new entertainment and is desperately trying to help me recover from my Ted Lasso blues. This week, we take a look at Mary Heron's Dallyland, starring Ben Kingsley as Salvador Dali, and The Crowded Room, a 10-part series based on the true story of Billy Milligan, produced by and starring Tom Holland on Apple TV+. The spotlight on alcohol consumption continues to intensify after new Health Canada guidelines updates and the push for labeling grows. Dr. Aaron Hoban, a senior scientist from Public Health Ontario, is here to shed light on this crucial matter and to discuss the pushback from the alcohol industry that claims labeling doesn't work. Finally, Natalie Simodiak knew she was related to a Ukrainian opera star her whole life, but it wasn't until a tour in the Ukraine that she realized she was also a national treasure. Natalie has now brought Solomea's story to life in her new documentary that celebrates the human spirit and looks to preserve the rich history of Ukraine where history, artistry, and personal triumph unite in an extraordinary way. It's another full week at What She Said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. Just 
first guest today is an unstoppable advocate for LGBTQ2 rights and education, a distinguished community engagement expert, and a highly recognized diversity and inclusion consultant. She is Faye Johnston, the executive director and co-owner of Wisdom to Action, an organization dedicated to youth mental health, community health and wellness, and gender-based violence issues. Based in Ottawa, Faye has tirelessly dedicated her career to creating meaningful change within the LGBTQ2 community, driving initiatives at local, provincial, and national levels. From leading successful campaigns to making a stand in the face of online harassment, Faye has consistently displayed courage, resilience, and unwavering commitment to her cause. As a trans woman herself, Faye's advocacy is not just professional, but deeply personal. They have leveraged their platform to effect substantial change and promote inclusivity, inspiring countless individuals along the way. It is a real honor to have her on the show today. Welcome to What She Said, Faye. Hi, Candace, and thank you so much for having me on today. It's an honor for me to be here with you. Uh, I'm thrilled that you're here. So from, from your perspective, I mean, it's Pride Month, so let's, let's start with this. So what's the sort of the current state of LGBTQ2 plus rights in Canada, and what are the most pressing issues that need to be addressed? That is a phenomenal question. I think in Canada, we've, we've come a long way in the last 20 years, and it's important to recognize that. We live in a world radically different from uh, the realities of everyday discrimination, of you know, state-sponsored homophobia and transphobia that defined the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, but at the same time, you know, things are not doing, are not as well as they could be. Our community is still struggling each and every single day. Uh, we've had some really good progress on legislative rights, but social and economic inequities from high rates of poverty to homelessness uh, to high rates of harassment and hate uh, still define too much of what it's like to be a queer or trans person in this country. And so right now, again, we're doing better, but I think the biggest issue on my mind today is this unprecedented surge in anti-queer and anti-trans hate and this recognition that while we've come a long way, much of that progress is unfortunately quite precarious. What is driving this rise in hate we're seeing? And more importantly, what can we be doing to counter it effectively? So I think the, the, the rise in hate is best described as an evolution. I think, you know, Canada, like hate has always been here. It's not an anomaly. It's not new. Um, but I think over the last few years, we've seen increasing far-right radicalization all across the world and across North America. That has begun with things like white supremacy reviving itself in bigger and bolder ways in the U.S. That flowed into the, the COVID-19 pandemic, where we saw this rise in conspiracy theory and an, uh, a way through which you know, far-right anti-queer and trans groups could recruit and appeal to a broader segment of the public because uh, folks were beginning to be radicalized and more distrustful of media, of politicians, and all of those things. And I think when it comes to anti-queer and trans hate specifically, I think there was a recognition uh, that far-right and anti-queer groups could try to segment off certain members of our communities and that by doing so, uh, they could set the stage for further radicalization and uh, further proliferation of anti-progress and anti-rights rhetoric. Uh, and so they realized they could get votes from it. They realized that they could create fear and anxiety and that that could help fuel this broader like anti-woke narrative uh, that we're seeing pushed by elected officials and anti-queer and trans groups all across the country right now. 
But if you were to, if you were just, you know, let's just say an alien landed on Earth and was reading the news and listening to, you know, the discourse, they would think that trans people must be running the world. What is the actual percentage of trans people in in Canada? So the best data that we have comes from Statistics Canada. And I like to preface, like, I think there's a lot more trans people than any government survey could ever account for. We have a long of history. Course of not wanting to be like counted by governments and <laughs> distrust there. And rightfully um, so, yes. Right? Yeah. But I think, you know, so we're 1% we're of the population, maybe. Uh, likely a little bit more, in my opinion. And that percentage of the population, again, is, you know, more likely to live in poverty. The best data we have says that 48% of trans people make under $30,000 a year. And so this idea that trans folks are everywhere uh, and that we're like pulling strings of power there are no elected officials at the federal level that are trans in Canada. There was maybe five trans folks elected to provincial legislatures. I don't know many trans business owners. I don't know many t trans TV hosts or columnists. We are few and far between. And so it is absolutely wild to, Im to see these groups imagining us as pulling these nefarious strings of power. And it is actually just another indication of how far into conspiracy many of these groups have fallen. Well, you know, you have experienced the hate uh, firsthand. You were recently on the wrapper of a Hershey's bar for International Women's Month, which, by the way, I can't find anywhere. And I have been hunting for you all over Ottawa, but I'm going to find one. I swear I will. But tell me about the impact this campaign had on you uh, personally and then in terms of the work that you do. So personally, you know, I, I participated in this campaign with, with joy and happiness. Uh, I was excited to be alongside four other young women celebrating all that women have to offer in this world and recognizing how far we still have to go. And my hope in participating was to give some visibility to young trans people, young trans women and girls in particular. And we often are made to walk small in this world. We're made to make ourselves, you know, nice and digestible for others. And I wanted to show that we could stand strong, we could walk tall uh, and live our best lives. And then the ad went live on March 1st, 2023. And within 72 hours, my entire world changed. Uh, I had figureheads from the far right, from Matt Walsh to Ben Shapiro to Mr. Jordan Peterson himself, uh, you know, turning this into an international scandal. Out of nowhere, the hashtag boycott Hershey's uh, was trending. I had my personal information shared on social media. I had my legal, my old legal name put out in the world. I had pre and early transition photos used against me uh, and instantly saw my social media, my inbox inundated with hate mail, uh, slurs, encouragements to self-harm and so much more. So it was, you know, not a pleasant experience, uh, but I think it really does show how dangerous it is getting to be a visible trans person in this country uh, and in the world writ large. Uh, I think the emotional impact was uh, one that I still am struggling to process because it's absolutely absurd to be, you know, a trans woman who's just like hanging out, doing her best in Ottawa and then subjected to this like obscene, volume of hate and to know that there are people out there uh, who don't see me as a human being who just see me as a symbol of something that they loathe and something that they love to squash out of the public eye. 
You know, little did you know at that time that you were actually at the forefront of a big backlash against corporations. In that time, we've seen now all this pushback on Bud Light in the U.S. and uh, Target and as recently as Chick-fil-A, notorious in usually their stands against, uh, you know, marginalized communities uh, hiring a DEI expert. And now they are the subject of, of all this. Where do corporations fit into this discussion? And, and you know, Target recently, as an example, sort of backed off. So what do, what do you think we're going to see from corporations? How can they go forward um, and in light of everything that's going on? So I think it's important to recognize, I think we, we talk about pinkwashing in queer and trans communities a lot. It's the magical experience of as soon as it's June 1st, every or many corporate logos become rainbows mm-hmm. and organizations say, woohoo, we need to do more for queer and trans communities. And so I think, you know, those are good efforts, but I think that they often fall far short of what our communities need. And as we see this rising hate, one of our biggest fears or one of my biggest worries Uh, is that corporations are going to get more reticent to engage with queer and trans communities. We're seeing this effort uh, to bully corporations to avoid talking about us. And you can see the impact that would have if one year corporations are celebrating and promoting queer and trans inclusion, and then the next they're a little bit more scared. That sends a message to their queer and trans employees and to queer and trans shoppers that we're not as welcome Uh, as we could be, and that maybe there was a little bit of performativity under that. And so right now, as we see this rising hate, I think we need corporations to speak out louder and to be bolder. I think it's not enough to change your logo to a rainbow. Uh, I think you need to be speaking out about rising hate, and you need to be showing your work. What I mean by that is I want tangible efforts to support trans and gender diverse and queer people to thrive in these corporate environments. I want corporations that are helping sponsor and donate to local queer and trans organizations, as many do, but to escalate those efforts because uh, there is a principle at stake here, and it is what kind of world do we stand for, one where we accept and celebrate diversity, or one where that diversity is vilified, uh, and where the very humanity of our communities is put into jeopardy. And how can they push outside of those June boundaries as well? You know, because it's not just June. You're not just trans or gay in the month of June. So what can they do year round to really show that support? I think part of it is about ongoing uh, efforts internally. So things like queer and trans employee resource groups, things like training, uh, making sure that their health benefits include things that trans and gender diverse people might need, like voice therapy or laser hair removal or things like that. And I also think it's about speaking out and celebrating queer and trans culture. So recognizing days like the Trans Day of Remembrance, like the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, and Transphobia, but then making sure that they're also participating in things like drag events, in pride parades, that they're really present more in our communities than just the month of June. Because as you said, we are gay year-round, and our rights shouldn't matter year-round, too. Precisely. I I couldn't agree with you more. We're going to take a quick break and go to commercial, but we'll be right back with more from Faye Johnson. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. 
Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Okay, we're back with Faye Johnstone. Uh, we're going to move a little way from corporations and let's go into sort of the role of government here because, and you know, educational institutions as we've seen this month, shocking, actually shocking to me was that uh, a school board in York region is not flying the pride flag. What are your thoughts on this, Faye? You know, Catholic school boards uh, and queer students in Catholic schools are twice as likely to face harassment in their schools because of their gender and sexual identities. Uh, I think that it is deeply concerning that the pride flag is being turned into this symbol of some nefarious agenda when it is about sending a message of support and inclusion to queer and trans students, staff and communities. We are seeing efforts to roll back inclusion in New Brunswick, where a a Minister of Education and Premier are looking at reviewing a crucial policy that supports the privacy rights of trans and gender diverse people. We are seeing efforts to stop municipalities from raising the pride flag across this country. Uh, And so it is absolutely crucial right now, more than ever, that we push back against those efforts and stand by this message of inclusion. Because imagine being a kid in York Region Catholic School Board, and knowing that your school board didn't bother to stand for you, knowing the message it sends, if it isn't willing to do something as simple as raise a flag and celebrate a community that has an important role in Canadian culture. So we've talked about corporations, we've talked about government. There's one sort of last little space that I think is we need to talk about, and that's social media. You know, you, I know, for example, on Twitter, you have your comments restricted uh, to only those who you mutually follow, uh, things like that. What can these social media platforms be doing to protect um, users from these unwarranted attacks? I think that they need to lean in often to policies that they already have. So, for example, on Twitter, there has historically been uh, policy protections that you can't misgender or dead name trans and gender diverse people. Uh, and that you can't, you know, go around calling people groomers and pedophiles. Uh, And recently, I think they've become more lax with enforcing those safety measures. Such Elon has, I'm going to just say, Elon has become (laughs) more lax. Yes, okay. Absolutely. I think, you know, uh, social media platforms, they can reinforce those protections. Uh, They can make sure they embed inclusion into their platforms. Things like pronoun options, like we have on LinkedIn, and I believe on Instagram now as well. Um, but then making sure that there is a rigorous process uh, to oust hateful accounts. That includes reducing uh, the ability for bots to spam out hate messages. Because I'm fairly convinced that someone behind the scenes is just sending the bots my way because so many of these accounts have like two followers and just pop up any time that I have anything to say or that another trans person speaks out on anything. Yeah, there's absolutely... a. Uh way too many bots i know this from experience myself even just you know it, it, in a few things especially when the convoy was going on there was a a lot of bots on that platform so let's talk about wisdom to action because this is a very positive happy thing i i think it's a, it's not a happy thing that you have to do this but it's positive in all the work that you're doing tell me about it yeah so we are a consulting firm and social enterprise we work with governments nonprofits, social services and everybody that we can 
uh, to advance gender and sexual diversity, uh, to advance gender justice, and we also help with nonprofit organizational development, so helping organizations do what they do better. And the thing I love about our work is that, you know, there's a lot of downtown Toronto C-suite consulting firms that live and thrive in the business world and upsell you and just want to pop in, make some money and go about their lives. Uh, whereas we strive to be grounded in the communities that we work with. We're not here uh, to give you a magical corporate solution. We're here to work with you to help you do what you're doing better uh, and to scale your efforts uh, through a grounding in community engagement and anti-oppression. My favorite thing about what we do, however, is we use our platform and our relationships to help fuel advocacy on queer and trans issues, challenging governments in particular uh, to speak up and act amidst things like rising hate, poor health outcomes, and a homelessness crisis that is worse in our queer and trans communities than within the general public. And my last question for you then is, I think a lot of people, you know, are watching from not in the LGBTQ2 plus community who are watching all of this obviously support you but don't know what they can do personally. So are, what are some action steps that we can take not just in June? <laughs> we need to emphasize this all year round. What can we do to to help uh, this community be, and, and, and actually push back on this hate? So I think, you know, we have a, a new nonprofit called the Society of Queer Momentum that is striving to address this rising tide of hate. And we have a campaign out right now at www.act4queersafety.ca uh, that is calling on the federal government to address this rise in hate. And so I think anyone this month or all year round can go to that website, sign that petition and send a message of support. But I also think now is the time to be supporting our local queer and trans community organizations like the uh, like Kind Space here in Ottawa or the Ten Oaks Project um, or the other organizations all across this country that are doing the work fighting hate, but also supporting our communities amidst all of these inequities that we experience. My last thought really would be to write your members of parliament, your city councillors, your school board trustees and any other elected official in your community because we need them to hear from local residents. There are only so many queer and trans people, and there are only so many of us who have the time and resources to spend reaching out to our elected officials. If you as an ally can reach out to those folks, emphasize the importance of inclusion and your desire to see your elected officials act, that empowers us to be more able to access these spaces and to get these governments at every level to act amidst rising hate. And that's magic to my ears and and i think people might say i'm being a bit alarmist here but you are literally the canary in the coal mine and if people value their own rights they should absolutely be protecting yours absolutely this is about more than just queer and trans communities if they can succeed in demonizing us they will do it to others next we're already seeing reports of cisgender or non-trans women being harassed in bathrooms because they're gender non-conforming and so this is also about everybody's rights. And it's also about the fact that queer and trans communities exist in every single place and space. If you are a parent, you could have a queer and trans kid. If you are a parent and you want other families to have accepting spaces for their children, you need to be speaking out right now more than ever. This is not just an anomaly or an isolated issue. This is a rising tide of hate that is trying to roll back progress for all of our communities. 
Faye, you are a bright light. I can't thank you enough for joining me. I, I'm going to get all those links you gave uh, during the interview and put them in the liner notes when this goes out on podcast. And I hope we can have you back again someday soon. I would love to. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Next guest today is taking friendship and connection to a whole new level using the power of social media. Chelsea Felker, a creative problem solver from Ottawa, has been leveraging the platforms of TikTok and Bubble BFF not just to make friends herself, but to encourage others to do the same. In a world where social media often drives comparison, Chelsea is transforming this narrative to foster genuine connections. Through her efforts, she's built a thriving community of nearly 90 women who participate in various meetups from picking tulips to rock climbing. Chelsea is here now to share her unique approach to friendship in our digital age and to discuss how social media can serve as a gateway for meaningful interactions. Welcome to What She Said, Chelsea. Thank you. So can you tell us more about your journey of using TikTok and Bumble BFF to facilitate friendships and how you built a community around this idea? Yeah, for sure. Um, It all started last summer, actually, when I dove into the Bumble BFF side of the app to kind of see what was going on there. Um, Matched with quite a few girls, had kind of small talk conversations similar to the dating side of the app, honestly, where it was like, what do you like to do? Blah, blah, blah. And trying to plan a time to meet up just felt very stilted and awkward. Something about meeting up with someone to like interview them to be a friend, it just felt a little unnatural. Um, But what I started doing was anyone who seemed interesting, who wanted to get involved in group meetups, I added them to a Discord server, which is kind of like a group chat, honestly, where you can just have multiple group chats going on at once. Um, And then nothing really came of it last summer. I think there was one meetup um, and it was just like, let's get together for drinks and it didn't go super well. Um, But this summer, I think with COVID kind of even more passing or in the past, I'm not sure how we're looking at that now, Um, tried to reinstate it. And again, the Bumble kind of worked. We got a lot of volume of girls who were really interested, um, but not a lot of people actually interested in meeting up necessarily. It was a bit of that cancellation last minute. So um, my sister, actually, my youngest sister had a TikTok that went viral a while ago, and she was like, just post one see what happens. And I was like, this is so awkward. Like I am not that like influencer girl. I don't know. Um, But I think I just posted one video and was very authentically myself and just said, hey, I'm going to take one for the team. I think a lot of people were posting on TikTok kind of feeling stuck, seeing videos of other people with their friend groups in the comments I kept reading, like, if only I had a group of friends to do that with. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll just put myself out there and see what happens. And all of a sudden I got so many messages. Um, And within two days, we had six girls at our first meetup. I love this. And And you know, that need for connection, you talk about it as well, that, you know, this post-COVID vibe uh, and people are starved for connection. So how do you think this shift has impacted the way we interact and form relationships online? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think TikTok especially has made it a little bit more comfortable to just be yourself. I think even the big difference between a Bumble profile versus a TikTok is you can see me moving. You can hear the inflection in my voice. You can see like, do I think I might want to hang out with that person? Whereas if you swipe through like 
six pictures of me and say like, want to go for a picnic or paddle boarding? And people are like, you could be anyone. Um, I've gotten a lot of people messaging me just saying how like welcoming the vibe of the video is and it makes them feel like they can show up. And I think it is a risk to show up and meet a stranger. Um, so the more you can give that little bit of safety and security of what are you going to expect when you show up, um, the better it is. We've even found with some of the meetups, if we're meeting in a park, I'll go to the dollar store and pick up a helium balloon so that you know exactly who you're looking for and we can remove that immediate awkwardness because I think everyone wants the same end goal, but approaching a stranger is so strange. So you almost need that um, open invite there so that you know that you're ready to be received in the way you want to. How has your life changed since posting that first TikTok? Yeah, I think I've become a lot more comfortable just trying things because like, what's the worst that's going to happen? I think I was very embarrassed at first. I didn't know what was going to happen. But now like I have social plans all the time. People are excited about meetups. I'm like, who wants to do this? And six people are like, yeah, I'll come. Um, so I feel like there's a lot more community around me. I feel like people, I don't know, I'm not as like skeptical of people anymore. I think like there's that openness, people are more genuine and less guarded. And if you go in with the right intention and an open mind, you can meet some really cool people out there. And have you found that connection you were looking for in in a girlfriend in a friend? Yeah, it's been it's been funny because I would say each meetup we have, there's about two new people and we've started to establish this core group of four of us who have been to three or four of the meetups now. And I've had one off meetups with some of them now. And really, we're starting to like build that connection to the point where some of my friends have said, hey, Chelsea, you did it. Like you have a friend group now. Are you going to keep advertising like what's happening? And I don't know. It is interesting because I do want to keep it comforting for new people to join a group but it is starting to get to that transition point where people know each other but we're all still so welcoming because three weeks ago we didn't know each other so uh, we can remember what it's like to be the new person and I found like even Saturday at our most recent meetup there was two or three new girls and everyone was so excited to have them there excited to get to know them and it didn't really feel like this like clash of the in-group and the out-group. Well, this is such a wonderful thing that you're doing. And I think what's great about it, too, is that it could be easily replicated in other cities around the country by somebody who's willing to throw themselves out there like you are. Uh, so I want people to, to be able to connect with you. And, you know, if they're not in Ottawa, uh, you know, they could at least follow to see how you're doing it. So what's the best way to keep up with you? Yeah, I don't have like an official page yet. Um, my personal Instagram and TikTok are both at Simply Chelsetta, uh, S-I-M-P-L-Y-C-H-E-L-S-E-T-T-A. But you're right, there are tons of other groups doing it. I was very much inspired by Let's Make Friends in Vancouver. I think there's some groups in Toronto. I definitely didn't come up with this idea myself. There's a ton of other groups out there doing it. So um, it's worth it. Just like throw yourself out there. I would highly, highly encourage. All right, excellent. We're going to throw the links to your social profiles in the liner notes when this goes out on podcast. And thank you so much for joining me today, Chelsea. Of course, thanks for having me. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. I am adrift at sea this week with the demise of Ted Lasso, so I need new entertainment. 
Thankfully, Anne Brody is here with the latest. <laughs> Anne, what do you got for us this week? Oh, I week? don't think you're alone in that, Candace, but not to worry. All right. Uh, Dawn Heron's daughter is a renowned Canadian filmmaker. So her latest, her name is Mary, is Dolly Land, which is uh, another offbeat film that, that she's renowned for. And it concerns Salvador Dali. He used to spend his winters um, in New York and at the St. Regis Hotel, and he would just held court the whole time. He had night and day parties, very expensive, lots of caviar and champagne and whatnot. Well, turns out he and Gala, his, his lover and muse, are uh, in a bad financial state. He has three weeks to do some paintings to fill up a show locally to sell. If they don't sell them, they are ruined. But he can't stop partying you know, with all these uh, uh, bold print names of the mid-70s. Um, so that's, you know, he's in a really bad situation. Furthermore, he's he's kind of a weak willy. He's easily led by people. And it turns out that Gala is sending most of his money to her, her young lover. So he hires a young fella uh, to take care of him, to be his assistant. And he discovers all that's going on behind the scenes. Um, so, you know, these geniuses, they have a talent, they have a gift that no one else can possibly duplicate, but they have uh, omissions in their personality in terms of survival. So it's a, it's a very sad film, but it's beautifully, it's beautiful to look at. It's not the greatest film ever, but it is it's kind of interesting, and I would definitely recommend it. And and I haven't seen Ben Kingsley in anything. Oh my God, in a he's long so time. good. He is so good as Dolly. Oh, yeah. And you'll never guess, but Ezra Miller, you know, the disgraced actor, plays yeah. young um, Dolly very effectively. He, it's a good performance. All right, excellent. All right, what else do you got to, for us then? All right, you know all those fabulous 60s and 70s uh, album jackets from Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, 10CC, Paul McCartney, Peter Gabriel? They all came out of the Hypnosis studio in London, and it's a story called Squaring the Circle. It um, concern, It's a documentary about Aubrey Poe Powell and Storm, just named Storm, the two men who started it out in Cambridge. They're, they were great friends with Pink Lloyd, which was just coming into flower at that point. So they basically recreated the entire idea of the visual aspect of vinyl um, and, and are still working. But it's a great story. It's interesting. It has lots of gossipy stuff behind the scenes back in the 60s and 70s. And if you're a music fan, this is for you. So I, it, it's a great film. Circling the Square, the, the story of hypnosis. All right, let's talk about The Crowded Room. Tom Holland, executive produces, like he's just perpetually a kid to me. Why is he producing movies All right. now? <laughs> yeah, so get this. get this. He's picking off where James Cameron, um, Joel Schumacher and David Fincher dropped it. It's been in development for years and years and years. It's a story of Billy Milligan, who you might heard of. He was the only, the first person in the States to be um, found not guilty of multiple rapes and murders because of uh, multiple personality disorder. 
So Tom executive produces this, and he stars as Billy Milligan. It really creeped me out. It really creeped me out. This is a. I remember when all this happened, and this the script's based on Daniel Key's book, and the script was originally written by James Cameron, so that was cool. But um, he was found to have at least ten personalities, perhaps as many as twenty-four. Uh, fun distraction, comfort viewing, nah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so this is not my Ted Lasso follow-up. Is this what you're this telling me? This is not your follow-up, Candace. Run, run. But it, it totally consumed the media back in the seven, in the uh, yeah, in the seventies. So it may have been of interest to many people out there, but not you. Well, I, I, you know, I, I know that there are people out there just who love these true, true crime. crime. Right? They're just obsessed with it. I can't do it, but no. I have to tell you, watching the trailer. For me, the most, uh, you know, the hardest part was seeing Tom Holland being so I know, serious. Boy, right? And that's yeah. extra scary. I, I <laughs> can see that. that. makes it worse. But, um, yeah, I just want to quickly mention the NFB documentary Beyond Paper. It's a history of paper and the struggle these days against digital and the fact that paper is disappearing. Paper has been used for millennia. Um, there are underground uh, libraries all over Africa and the Middle East uh, where these ancient texts are still kept. Um, the problem with digital is that in the future, by changing programs, we might not be able to save what we saved. And you'll know that if you've switched computers. So it's a big problem. So things may not be saved the way they are now. If, you know, students aren't taught cursive anymore, um, and what's going to happen to these magnificent world libraries? And there, quite a few of them are profiled in, in this documentary. Um, it's, it, there's a tremendous sadness about it. So, and what about all these faith works and, say, letters from ancestors between, you know, lovers or whatever? All gone if, if digital has its way. Yeah, fascinating. So you've got all of these and more over on whatshesaidtalk.com and you'll be back next week. Thanks so much, Anne. Sure will. Bye-bye. In life, there are a myriad of things we take pleasure in, yet many come wrapped with hidden consequences. That's why we have warning labels on products like cigarettes, cannabis, and vapes, informing us of their potential risks. Even our restaurants diligently disclose calorie counts and quantities of sugar in salt in meals, giving us a clear idea of what we're getting ourselves into. But what about alcohol? It's intriguing that alcohol, a recognized carcinogen, often slips through the checks and balances. Isn't it high time we question this status quo? Joining me today is Dr. Aaron Hoban, a distinguished senior scientist from Public Health Ontario, here to shed light on this crucial matter. Welcome to What She Said, Aaron. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so happy we're having this conversation about alcohol uh, more and more in the media and just in general in our lives. Uh, but can you start 
actually by explaining the significance of the recent updates to Canada's guidance on alcohol and health and its implications for public health and awareness. I think there are three main messages from the updated alcohol and health um, guidance. The first being that people in Canada have a right to know the most up-to-date and accurate information on alcohol and health. Um, Canada's updated guidance was um, developed to support people in Canada in making more informed decisions when it comes to alcohol and, and health. The guidance is not intended to tell people what to do, but to provide easy, um, easily accessible, accurate information on alcohol and health. The second um, key message is that alcohol causes dozens of, of diseases, including cancer, most cardiovascular diseases, and liver diseases. So it's more than just a hangover in the morning or um, alcohol use disorder, although that's an um, uh, and a, a very serious condition. Alcohol can um, cause, you know, dozens of diseases, and I think that Canadians need to know that. Currently, the perspective in Canada is that alcohol is a relatively benign substance and not a substance that causes serious uh, health risks. And the third key message is that if you drink alcohol, you aren't necessarily going to get cancer, but the risk of cancer and other alcohol-related health conditions increases the more you use alcohol. So one of the sort of key recommendations from the updated guidance is that using less alcohol is better for living longer and healthier. And can you remind me or my, the audience really what the guidelines are? How many drinks per week? So the um, previous guidelines that were released in 2011 recommended sort of this binary cutoff uh, for low-risk alcohol consumption. And the new guidance is sort of getting away from this binary cutoff to provide um, a continuum of risk associated with average weekly alcohol use. And on this continuum of risk, the risk of an early death and disease from alcohol is low for individuals who use two standard drinks or less per week on average. It's moderate for those individuals who are using between three and six standard drinks per week. And it's increasingly high for those consuming seven standard drinks uh, or more per week. And at this level of increasingly high risk, so after the seven standard drinks uh, per week threshold, the health risk increases uh, more steeply for females females uh, than for males because females experience um, alcohol harm sooner and at lower levels of alcohol use um, compared to males. So I think that's a, another very important point of um, this guidance. And when you speak about alcohol harm, you're not just speaking about cancer, right? There are other issues there that may arise. Yes, yeah, so cancer is a very important um, health risk to consider because the risk of cancer starts to increase at, you know, very small amounts of regular use of alcohol. So even at one to two standard drinks per week, the risk of, of cancer starts to increase. But um, the evidence very clearly indicates that alcohol causes dozens of diseases. So above that um, two standard drink 
per week threshold. So once you um, are consuming, you know, three to six standard drinks or, or more, your risk of several types of cardiovascular disease um, or liver disease starts to increase. And those are the chronic conditions. There's also risk of more acute conditions. So in the guidance, um, there is a recommendation as well not to consume more than two standard drinks on any one uh, drinking occasion because after um, that amount, your risk of more acute conditions, whether that's injuries or violence, um, starts to increase. So there is some in the industry, though, in the al alcohol industry, obviously, that are saying that these warning labels don't work, they're not necessary. What would you say to that? Um, the evidence uh, supporting alcohol warning labels as an effective tool for um, educating the public on the health risks from alcohol and providing safety information for people um, to use alcohol in a you know a safer manner. Um, is growing and it's also sort of more consistently showing that well-designed alcohol warning labels can you know be this effective tool for uh, widely disseminating this information to the population. Do you know how Canada stacks up on a global stage when it comes to these warning labels and and how we talk about alcohol with with consumers? There was a, a evidence review on uh, studies um, uh, examining um, the public awareness of the link between alcohol and cancer, for example. And this review found that between um, 13 and 50 percent of the population, and this is um, international studies, so around the world, know the link between alcohol and cancer. And at that time, uh, the Canadian population, uh, the knowledge of the link between alcohol and cancer sat around 25%. Now with when the um, guidance, uh, the, the updated guidance was released in January 2023, it was really the first time that I can remember that Canada had a national conversation about alcohol and health. And my team conducted a national study following um, the release of that guidance and the intense media coverage that it received to, um, to get a better sense of, you know, the public awareness of in Canada around alcohol and health. And we found that now about 40% of um, Canadians who are using alcohol know that alcohol, um, uh, alcohol increases your risk of cancer. And about 50% know that alcohol increases your risk of hypertension. And then, you know, a, a larger proportion of the population know that alcohol is linked to liver disease. Um, Ireland, we in public health, we uh, actually had a massive victory because earlier this week, Ireland passed legislation uh, that will be implemented in May 2026 to uh, mandate cancer warnings as well as other health information on all alcohol containers um, in the country. And that was a real uphill battle for uh, the government in Ireland to uh, pass this legislation because of the opposition uh, from the industry. So um, my understanding is that the original public health bill with this legislation uh, in Ireland was uh, first passed in 2018, but it took five years to actually sign uh, the final legislation to have it implemented. Well, if Ireland can do it, we certainly can. Home of the pub on every corner. Uh, I think if Ireland could do this, then I think we, we, we should be able to. So when it comes to education, though, 
how early should we be starting that education component for people? Because I feel there is so much misinformation out there. We've all seen the headlines, you know, wine is good for you. And, you know, where should people really be getting this education from? And how early should we be starting that education with kids? I think you make a really great point. Um, Currently in Canada, the alcohol information environment is dominated by the alcohol industry. Whether we're walking in our neighborhood or commuting to work or attending a sporting event or a birthday party or a wedding, we are inundated with alcohol messages and cues that alcohol, you know, is part of our daily life. There are very few Uh, public health information interventions that have been implemented in Canada, again, to provide easy access to um, public health information about alcohol and health. This week there was a study that was published in the academic literature suggesting that information interventions are important and a real cornerstone cornerstone for a comprehensive alcohol strategy. And as part of this comprehensive alcohol strategy, um, this study suggested having effective school-based programs so that, you know, children and adolescents can start to learn about alcohol and health and um, safer levels of alcohol use and real strategies to perhaps, you know, make decisions about whether or not they're going to use alcohol and if they do choose to use alcohol, how they can use it at um, safer levels. All right, excellent. I want people to be able to Uh, learn more and learn it from a uh, reliable source. So where should people go to read up on this? The Canadian uh, Center for Substance Use and Addiction was the organization that led the updated alcohol and health guidance in Canada and provides comprehensive information um, on the guidance as well as alcohol and health in general. Um, So I would recommend uh, visiting their website. All right, excellent. Dr. Hoban, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. My next guest is a force in the world of film and theater, an alumna of the University of Southern California, the New York Film Academy, and holding an MFA in theater from York University. Natalie Simodiak has a new project that is near and dear to her heart for many reasons. In her latest project, Solomea, she delves into the life of the iconic Ukrainian soprano, bridging history, personal discovery, and art. Natalie's unique exploration of her lineage through this project underscores her commitment to storytelling and cultural preservation. Welcome to What She Said, Natalie. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So could you share with us the story behind the mysterious portrait that inspired your journey to discover more about Salomea and your family's story? Yes, of course. So um, growing up, my grandmother always had this beautiful portrait on her wall of this, you know, very graceful looking woman. And it was so unusual to have a piece of art like that uh, in her home. And so, you know, when I was a kid, I would I was ask her and, you know, say, like, who who is that? 
And she would always tell me that it was Teta Solomia, which in Ukrainian means Aunt Solomia. But over the years, she started to tell me a few more tidbits about who she was, the fact that she was uh, you know, a world-renowned opera singer at the turn of the 20th century, uh, you know, a Ukrainian legend to this day. Um, but I didn't really get it back then, you know, it was just like, you take it for granted, you know, like, okay, grandma, whatever you say. Uh, and it was only until I went to Ukraine for the first time when I was 15, where we went to this, uh, uh, we went to Lviv, which is in Western Ukraine, and they have this cemetery where like all Ukrainian national heroes are buried and, you know, uh, important figures. And you go on a tour there. And one of the first stops we go to is, of course, Solomia Krushelnitska's grave. And the tour guide is telling us all these details about her life. And I realize that the tour guide knows more than I do about my own family member. And that was just such a, you know, a, um, a revelatory moment where I went, oh man, like I have a responsibility to know more about my own family member than a tour guide does. And so, um, it, over the years, it was just something that I knew, uh, it was a story that I was going to have to tell at some point. It was only a matter of when. And so when my dad said that he wanted to write a biography about her and announced that he was going to go on a series of research trips, I was like, oh, I'm coming. I'm coming I'm, and I'm bringing my camera. And so I went with him and I documented our journey and it became... You know, it started in 2019, which was a very different world than what it is today. And so uh, we started going on these research trips, going to places where she lived, where she sang, where she worked. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. And then, of course, on uh, in 2022, the Russian invasion happened. And so it changed the scope of the story and became so much more about preserving uh, Ukrainian culture and really sharing this story of this this Ukrainian figure who means so much to the people of Ukraine, even to this very day. And do you feel now that you would have a different reaction with that tour guide? Oh my God, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Like I could tell her a thing or two, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and, and do you think you've inherited any of your, your relatives' singing abilities? I, well, I, I mean, I, I definitely am not as talented as her, but I will admit that, yes, I am a bit of a singer. I've actually released my own EP previous years, so it's something that I share. And, you know, it's the love of music, I think, is something that we all shared in our family. So it's been something that's definitely an inherited trait. Now, you mentioned you, you started to film this, obviously, before the invasion. Yeah. What does this, the importance of this film mean now, post-invasion? Oh, it... Um, you know, it's funny, we used to talk about before the war happened of like, you know, who's going to care about a woman who lived, you know, uh, you know, almost 100 years ago. Uh, and, you know, in Ukraine, in this country where like, you know, not a lot of people ev could even point it out on a map. Um, and, you know, for the worst reason possible, we realized like, we have a responsibility to tell this story. It's now more important than ever. And, you know, we always say along the lines of, um, in a time when the Ukrainian identity, the Ukrainian uh, culture, the Ukrainian language, the Ukrainian nation is under threat of annihilation, every single story you tell about Ukrainian figures is an act of preservation, it's an act of resistance, and it's an act of speaking out. And so we, we just know that um, there is no other option 
you know, it's no longer something that we, we think like, oh, well, should we do it? Can we do it? No, it's, it's, um, it's essential. That's the only choice that we have. And I think it's very important too for the audience to embrace this film and learn more about Ukrainian culture and history yeah. as well. So I want people to be able to find this. This is uh, just an incredible piece of history that that you've you've brought to life for everybody. So can you share where they can connect with you, where they can find the film, and perhaps keep up with where what you're going to do next? Of course, I would say the best place to find me is to follow me on Instagram. I'm always you know keeping updates on what I'm working on and uh, the progress of the film and all that so you can follow me at at natalie.simodiak uh, and uh, otherwise follow the uh, website which is www.cohepro.com and we've got all the information there and we'll we'll be updating as things come out all right wonderful natalie thank you so much for joining me today it was such a pleasure thank you so much that's it for what she said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at what she said talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.